0: Hi everyone welcome back to Eurotrash. I'm Dominic Loyster still alone without Anton Jäger who is currently traveling in New England but we decided to put out this bonus episode nonetheless. We're going to talk about yesterday's spectacular and very close victory of Lula in the Brazilian election and we have two guests that I think are um, in a wonderful position to talk about it. David Artler who's a founding member of of Eurotrash and a close personal friend who is the director of the Progressive International and who was in the room when it happened and who has been reporting from Brazil for quite a few weeks now and Alex Hockuley who is also a friend of the show, show of sorts who Founded and runs the another very good podcast on the left, the Alpha Bunga Bunga podcast, of which David and I are veterans of sort. I strongly encourage you go check them out. We will be talking about how the events of the last two weeks and days unfolded, about the mania of the the weekend and the false flag operations and the uh, you know the the violence um, involving bolsonarista politicians and blatant attempts at voter suppression in the northeast and how this is all heavy-handed political thriller in a way but also the reality of brazilian politics um, for many many decades we will also focus on how lula's third term will be different than his first two terms how this particular class compromise will unfold this time and how much room for manoeuvre he has, given congressional um, constraints and um, you know not having key uh, you know, key governorships throughout the country. And we'll talk about foreign policy as well and how his attempts to push through social democratic policies at home will bring him into conflict with um, some of his um now partners, maybe future uh, enemies abroad, particularly the United States and particularly with regard to his ambition to lead a new non-aligned movement in close cooperation with other middle-income countries in the global south, particularly China and India. We hope you'll enjoy this and this will be put out for free uh, for everyone. For our patrons, uh, we we're very grateful for your support financially. It, have, it helps us make a better podcast um, and will help us eventually to improve the quality of our productions. And we hope you can continue contributing and that you will enjoy the upcoming episodes with Helen Thompson that Anton and I recorded back in May. We talk about her book, Disorder, and we talk about the commodity crisis and the energy crisis in Europe and abroad. The week after, Adam Twos will be back on the podcast to discuss the euro crisis and the last uh, 10 or 12 years of eurozone policy making. This will be the second of a three-part series on the eurozone and the crisis of European integration. We hope you can listen in and we hope you enjoy this bonus episode on Brazil. Welcome both Alex Oculi and David Artler. I just want to start off with asking for your witness testimony of the last uh, few days, which were quite frantic. And I imagine we're even more frantic from your vantage point, uh, both of you being in Brazil. How did things go down over the weekend and in the weeks between the first round and the second round?
1: You know, in my job or my capacity as, uh, as General Coordinator of this Progressive International, I have the opportunity to you know look at, study, and learn from uh, right-wing, neo-fascist movements around the world. But I have to say that the Brazilian far-right has impressed me deeply with its creativity, its commitment to the bit, so to speak, uh, its um, imagination, uh, to, uh, to really imagine sort of false flag operations and plan and execute plot attempts and coups. It's a really, uh, you know, kind of fertile ground for a lot of that uh, you know, true conspiracy uh, organizing on the Brazilian far right. It's sort uh, of
0: a, people... a heavy handed um, political thriller novel, right? Like something that's a bit too strange um, to be real. Some uh, of That's these... just
2: Brazilian history the, yeah. as a whole.
0: <laughs> can, you, can you give an example it... of uh, these false flag attempts that you talked about?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, there's three, there's three stories that come to mind from really the past, like, you know, week and a half uh, alone leading up to yesterday's election day. And I'm sure Alex will come in and add like 15 more because it, on the one hand, it feels like a political thriller. On the other hand, it's so constant and, and so diverse uh, that it becomes kind of absurd, farcical at some point. So the first one is actually really concerning, and not funny, um, because uh, it involves a person who's now assuming possibly the second most powerful position in the country. I don't know what you think, Alex, about the Sao Paulo governorship, but it's famously one of the most important positions in the country. Um, That candidate... Uh, a week and a half ago, you know, walked w- with his campaign through a favela, through a, a slum informal settlement uh, in the state of Sao Paulo, trying to kind of show off, you know, he's kind of a tough guy. He's not afraid about crime as a guy who was campaigning on stripping police of their body cams because, you know, the police are too surveilled, I suppose, uh, in in Brazil, a real classic kind of Carioca, Rio de Janeiro, I, I pro-police stance from this uh, Bolsonaro ally. Uh, and of course, he's walking to Favela. He's not welcome there. Uh, and some people from Favela are like, dude, get out of here. Get like get your journos out of here. Get your press team out of here. Get your bodyguards out of here. Get out. Uh, and they sort of shoo this guy away. And he comes back again and says, no, you really have to leave. Uh, and his security detail shoots this unarmed man dead. They try to then spin that as having been some assassination attempt uh, to make him look like a hero, to make him look like he was being persecuted that, that, you know, people were after him and that, you know, trying to sort of spin uh, the way that the Bolsonaro campaign spun uh, in the final days of the 2018 campaign when uh, he was stabbed and that act of martyrdom uh, was really important in lifting him uh, towards the presidency and actually keeping him away from the podium where he was likely to make a series of gaffes.
0: So the false Um, flag here was that he was attempting to simulate an assassination attempt and in the course of doing so, he killed an innocent
1: bystander. And they forced the journalists who were there to delete all the footage of what they'd seen. And luckily one of the journalists was there to record the audio of that conversation, which was then leaked. And that wasn't even enough to take this candidate down. He won last night with like a whopping 54 plus percent of votes in the state of Sao Paulo, and he's the incoming governor. That's story one. I'll go quickly through the other two stories. Story two uh, is literally one. This is uh, two days ago, right? Alex, I mean, two days ago, just this is to say the day before the elections, one block away from Lula's final, you know, fun mobilization on the Avenida Paulista, the main drag of Sao Paulo, uh, the bolsonarista member of parliament uh, is sort of getting into a sort of verbal joust with a, a, a young a Lula voter and, um, Uh, And then pulls a gun on this young black Lula voter and sort of is with the gun raised, chasing him through the streets of Sao Paulo. And then she tries to spin that as the PT sent a black man to harass her. Now, luckily, again, there were videos confirming that all of the way all that spin was nonsense, that she wasn't pushed over or anything like that, that, uh, you know, she just sort of pulled the gun in an act of kind of crazed uh, fascist violence. And the third one, which you mentioned at the outset, Dom, has to do with uh, what I would describe, maybe Alex would contest this description, as a pretty outright coup attempt yesterday. You know, an order signed at 2.43 in the morning by the general director of the Federal Highway Police uh, that led to 560 blockades in heavy Lula voting areas. In fact, the region where that, that brought Lula's uh, uh, victory uh, in, <laughs> into shape, uh, namely the Northeast were clearly designed towards acts of electoral intimidation, trying to keep away from the polls, stopping people who just had Lula stickers on their car. I mean, this is just such flagrant, brazen, and uh, sort of shameless violations of electoral law that then go completely unaccounted for by uh, Brazil's uh, judicial system, Uh, namely having the director of the, or the, the chief justice of the Brazil's electoral court come out and say, you know, both sides were probably affected by this. Probably no voters were affected. It seems legal to me. And so, this is what I mean about like. On the one hand, it's a thriller. On the one, on the other hand, it's been the strategy of the bolsheviks to write to flood politics with so much uh, flagrant illegality, corruption, violence that it transforms from tragedy to farce, and then it feels difficult to grapple with as a kind of political reality.
0: Well, just to um, I'll pass the ball to Alex. Then it sounds like. The, the Bolsonaro team, he and his allies, have done everything they can and thrown the entire weight of large parts of the state of the state apparatus behind his his campaign, and they still lost. I should say they did lose by a terribly narrow margin. This is the the narrowest margin in any election uh, in Brazilian history. But is the question then, why was it so close, or? Was well, it so close because of this interference, Alex.
2: Yeah, I mean, I genuinely haven't made my mind up about that yet. And um, I mean, I think I wrote about the election last night, I there's a there's a there's two different ways to look at this. And actually, every time you spin the ball around, it looks pretty different. So on the one hand, it's a remarkable Lula victory, a remarkable comeback, um, both in terms of his personal biography, in terms of the wider symbolism and the actual politics of the matter. Um, you know, no other candidate other than Lula could have won this election. And it's very evident that any if they had tried to stand anyone else, I don't just mean PT, but I mean any other opposition party, they would have lost and lost badly. And, uh, you know, this is almost a a message to the kind of mainstream center, center center-right, who continually try to stand an an alternative candidate, a so-called third-way candidate. And they all you know, they all failed. They tried to fly that kite and it got struck by lightning continually. Um, and I think they, they, the Brazilian establishment, um, the political establishment, as well as the cultural establishment and wider, ended up deciding, okay, we have to back Lula because there is no other, there is no other shot here, um, which was a remarkable bit of, uh, of sagacity, actually, um, a rare bit of sagacity on the part of the Brazilian establishment. On the other hand, what you have is perhaps a global, but certainly a regional anti-incumbency wave going on in Latin America and I don't think I fully expect this to continue in Europe for example anybody running for election now if you're in the incumbent you're going to get chucked out because conditions are so bad that um you know everyone's going to fall foul of this so in that regard you think well Lula should definitely have won the economy and specifically in the Brazilian context you know Brazil hasn't seen growth hasn't seen any kind of sustained growth um in basically a decade um you have a, a security situation which hasn't improved. You you know take any measure you want. The pandemic, six hundred thousand dead. Bolsonaro doing nothing, uh, refusing to buy vaccines. Graft schemes uh, in trying to buy vaccines at an inflated price. All this kind of stuff. You think this guy is the worst? And I don't just mean like you know in a kind of a, from a usual kind of left perspective that obviously you're going to find this guy bad but even on his own terms if one compares him to f- other figures like Modi like Erdogan like Orbán these guys at some level provide services or or you know that have there's some transactional element in which they provide to their base materially and Bolsonaro hasn't really other than at the frontier to agricultural indre- interest, mining interest, where it's just a free-for-all. But that's not a substantial enough uh, economic base, really, to, to be a political base. Let, let's put it that way. Um, so in, if you take all that into account, you think, well, then, you know, why didn't Lula win by more? Um, so it's, it's very hard to, to kind of come down definitively on one side or the other on this. I just wanted to make a, a, a quick point in reference to um, to what uh, David was saying just before this. With regard to Bolsonaro's strategy, and it has been very effective at a communications level, they have a degree of uh, capillarity, as it's called in Brazil, or, you know, kind of reach and depth um, to their campaigns, which far exceeds what the left uh, has been able to build. And the left, I think, you know, there are people trying to build the kind of social networks, you um, which, which will be necessary because although I'm one who would tend to be instinctively skeptical of um, too much internet politics, to put it that way, the reality is that Brazil does very much live online and increasingly so because it's always it's long been the case for five, 10 years that those who are online in Brazil are very online, um, not necessarily just on Facebook, for example, but on WhatsApp, where you basically conduct all your services, interactions, everything on WhatsApp, so you're constantly there. Um, but now the fact is that internet is has reached you know a, a very large majority of the Brazilian population so that same pattern of being very online is kind of replicated across society and therefore it has become a, a key battleground um, for political communications and so the left hasn't really built up that network but I think it will um, eventually be able to do so. Um, the the question about effectively bolsonaro creating outrages is in a sense and, and you know the, the things that, David has mentioned, I don't, uh, many of them were spontaneous, I don't think they were planned. Um, But they were, but it's part of a mode of action and response, which is just, why not, right? Just try things. And on the one hand, either it succeeds, and it demonstrates your own impunity, right? And you go, well, yeah, you can shoot um, someone who, who, you know, is a bad guy because maybe they're associated with drug trafficking or whatever it might be, right? So either it demonstrates impunity for the cidadão do bem, the good citizen um, to whom Bolsonaro appeals, uh, you know, and is cast as the the essence of the Brazilian nation or the elites, you know, in quotation marks again, I mean, or rather literal elites in the case of, you know, the courts, they come down like a ton of bricks um, or, you know, progressive media criticizes him. It creates an outrage, and that sustains his narrative of, of being the outsider, of being the victim and so on. So it's a kind of no lose situation when it comes to doing things like drawing a gun on a workers party supporter in the middle of Sao Paulo.
0: Yeah, I think I want to go back to, um, uh, actually I actually want to quote a, a section of the piece he wrote yesterday or this morning for unheard, I'll link to it in the description of this podcast, um, Quote, the economy is in terrible shape and millions are going hungry. So why couldn't Lula achieve a larger margin of victory? Perhaps he was caught between two stools, one playing to establishment interests, and the other rallying his working class and poor base. Indeed, Bolsonaro did not have the support of Brazil's elites during this election. Swaths of Brazil's ruling class, from finance capital and industrialists, to the legal and cultural establishment, to center-right politicians, all swung behind Lula. The verdict, Bolsonaro is bad for business, unquote. So I think, so the follow-up question is, this may or may not explain why, despite this uh, sort of inherent advantage of being on the right and being an outsider, Bolsonaro wasn't able to win despite his um, sort of flagrant vote, vote voter suppression attempts in the Northeast. Ironically, perhaps because he lost the sort of business elites who were, you know instinctively sent her right beforehand but does that also mean that we may have re-elected Lula but his third term will be quite dissimilar to his first two terms so maybe David maybe you want to start on that is how how do you think um Lula's third term will shake out and will it be will it be less radical uh less social democratic than his first two terms and Will he have the kind of room to maneuver that I think many of his voters are also expecting from him?
1: I think a highly simplified way of making sense of the different visions that Lula and Bolsonaro were putting forward, which I think would help us to to answer your question, Dom. Uh, And it speaks again to Alex's point about the kind of asymmetry between the tactics and strategies that the left can deploy and the ones that the right can deploy. Lula's a candidate of class compromise, And Bolsonaro is a candidate of class warfare, open class warfare. And we're already seeing this in the map, electoral map, which has never been more polarized by class, right? Lula won really by the mobilization of Brazil's poor and working class. Bolsonaro is firmly backed up by Brazil's middle class, even though Alex is absolutely right that at that elite level, the ruling class, there's huge fractures. But those fractures are partly because as Alex points out in the, in his unheard piece, you know, the Bolsonaro is bad for business is not, is, it has to do with, of course, two things. One is the international reputation that Brazil has, do, you know, do you want to be associated with this government? That's part of it. And the other is the sense of social stability, right. And, you know, what, uh, what kind of Brazil he's governing, if it's sort of lawless and, you know, people are not, you know, having their basic needs taken care of, that's bad. That threatens, you Um, the economic stability that's so important to sort of facilitate investment. So the question really becomes, uh, uh, can Lula deliver on on that class compromise? And I think that we're we're seeing uh, now today in Latin America, you know, it, it's interesting to make a, the comparison between what's being called the second pink tide and the first pink tide. So I think that the room for like basic social democratic class compromise, right? To say we don't have to live in a zero sum economy that Bolsonaro wants, where like every dollar it's, I mean, that I win is taken from the hands of somebody else, we can have the basic social democratic premise that we can grow and redistribute, which is, of course, the kind of core political economy of the Workers' Party since Lula's first mandate. But the space for that pitch is narrowing so quickly. And I think it's so critical to note, as you did in the question, Don, that the, 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 like the, the conditions under which Lula is now coming to power, similar to the conditions under which Boric came to power and Petro came to power uh, across Latin America, are very different than they were uh, you know, 25 years ago. They're different because the institutional foundations of democracy are different. The judiciary has been captured in lots of places. They've you know, really worn down the institutions of democracy to make them much, much weaker than they may have been uh, when there's a much firmer commitment, when we we're closer to the age of democratization. Uh, we have a more radicalized right that's adopting a lot of the tactics that we're seeing uh, from the U.S. Republican Party, for example, obstruction, corruption. Um, and of course, they're structurally completely different. Coming to power, you know, Latin America, uh, I think that the rate has suffered twice as much as the global average from the COVID-19 recession. Um, of course, Brazil, even, even more economically destroyed in the context of an energy crisis, a food crisis, lots of geopolitical tensions that are kind of you know, rumbling through the world, uh, and you know, questions about uh the p- potential for US rates to impact growth prospects in the South. So all of these things combine to make it much more difficult for new Lula government to deliver on the promise of that class compromise to hold together its coalition. Um, because you know, this is Lula's coming to power and sort of a Winning while losing moment, I think, as Alex was pointing out, right? Like we, we we won the presidency, but in the course, especially in the first round, we saw tons of the most v- kind of vile cretinous people come into the Senate, come into come into Congress, and come into governorships, right? Uh, Lula's not not running the show with a lot of the support from these really powerful governors across the country, and so my point is that that, that you arrive at. That, that basic you arrive again at that basic asymmetry for lulu to deliver on that class compromise you need a program that can bring all those people to the table but all the bolsonaristas need to do is just prod 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 undermine 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 and obstruct and you can inflame again that sense of class warfare and that's really what the whole corruption scandals were about i'm sure i was going get into more about you know where we are with the word corruption in contemporary brazil but all i'm trying to point out is that you know it's going to be really, really difficult for Lula to to deliver on this thing when he doesn't have that broad front support uh, that could kind of bring everyone to the table in good faith to deliver on how are we going to, you know, get that growth and deliver on a pro poor agenda that is at the core of the Workers Party's vision of a kind of democratic and uh, and you know egalitarian Brazil.
0: I like the line about um, Lula being the candidate of class compromise, whereas Bolsonaro the, the candidate of class warfare. I think it's certainly true that. Lula's first two terms were also based on these grand um, class compromises, which is partly also why they were so successful in a way, economically speaking. But as you say, it was underwritten by a totally different economic environment. The external environment was very favorable towards Brazil, especially in the last 10, 15 years, because it was one of the the, the, the prime commodity exporters that was benefiting off the boom in East Asia, in particular China, which is now sputtering and implementing zero COVID policies and adjusting its growth rate to something more um, realistic. And of course, you also mentioned the, the global one-trade tightening, which is hurting Brazil as it is every other um, uh, emerging market. Alex, do you think that um, delivering on this um, class compromise is going to be harder? Also with regard to, as you pointed out earlier, the fact that Lula doesn't have these key governorships uh, on his side. He, I, I, I'm pretty sure that Bolsonaro also has... I think the the largest force in both houses of parliament. How is Lula going to manage these, these upcoming 18 months or so?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, just for starters, there will be constantly the threat of impeachment hanging over, over him, right? Um, What, the class compromises that has actually happened with regard to Lula, I mean, very, not very much now in this election, is a desire for class peace. And so you had letters signed by leading industrialists um, and then other, and another letter signed by a whole class of the kind of cultural establishment, legal establishment and so on, um, calling for, you know, democracy and the defense of the rule of law, effectively um, casting their hand in favor of Lula. Now, what did that mean? Uh, that was, I think, um, a call for class peace, a kind of truce. Um, and I, I, you know, I was trying to remind myself how I felt in 2018 and how I kind of had analyzed the situation then. And things that I wrote were full of such venom for. All liberals, centrists, center right—all the people who speak in the name of democracy—and all flocked to Bolsonaro. Right? Um, he was—he was the establishment's candidate. He, you know, it, really across the board and. Um, how much venom I felt for these people who um, supposedly, you know, are often part of the so-called reflexive middle class. I think that's the term used in, in Italy, but, you know, um, who uh, in large part, um, barred kind of the more left progressive wing, uh, backed Bolsonaro. And, you know, this right now is a is a major turnaround. And I think we should be very deeply skeptical of what it actually means, right? Um, it's not like they have suddenly seen the light or something. Um, but so it, it's it's a temporary class piece. Now it's also worth reflecting on this on, from the PT's point of view. This is a party that, as you said, you know, since the since the 2002 election, which uh, saw much more moderate Lula contest uh, contest an election after having lost the previous couple. Uh, was one in which uh, you know, he promised a win-win and he very much delivered a win-win sort of politics. And when, that con- when the conditions for the win-win stopped, um, you know, Brazil didn't actually wasn't very badly hit at all by the 2008 crisis, in part because it was, um, you know, it hitched its tractor to China's growth. Um, something that isn't there now. Actually, um, China's slowdown means, uh, you know, not so good things for Brazil commodity exports, um, which is really Brazil's only successful economic sector. And um, so, when that win-win, when the conditions for the win-win stopped, PT did not have. Uh, the wherewithal to respond to that. And so they, they, you know, under Juma, they responded um, initially by a kind of um, a more uh, interventionist economic program and then wildly swung towards austerity shortly after uh, winning election in 2014, um, which was seen as an element of uh, not quite electoral fraud, but in in a certain sense that she had tricked her voters. And the question is now, has the party learned from that experience and learned or have certain ideas about how to govern in a situation which cannot provide for win-win. Um, my bet is that they will not opt for confrontation um, and they won't opt for com- confrontation because the simple um, congressional arithmetic and wider balance of forces is really not in their favor. And we can lament that from the left and say, they should have done X, Y, and Z uh, early, you know, at, at an earlier stage. But when it comes to this actual election, uh, the compiling of the broad front that Lula has done, uh, I think, was was possibly the only option. And the why has he compiled the broad front? I actually asked people on Twitter because I was curious about what people actually were generally thinking about this, because there's two schools of thought, and you know they're not mutually exclusive, but was the broad front to win an election, to have enough establishment support, or two, to prevent uh, a coup, even a soft coup, um, or impeachment down the line? And I would actually tend towards the latter. So what he's got is enough of the establishment on board and in government to um, to sort of at least for a while prevent um, prevent an impeachment. Of course, you know he has his former center right rival against who uh, he he won in election in two thousand six as his vice president, and so he you know he's uh, handily placed in case there were, would be an impeachment of the president. Um, anyway, to, to kind of round this out the electoral arithmetic or the congressional arithmetic is really disfavorable to the PT. What you have now um, is a pretty different configuration. I could probably go into the kind of eye kind of stuff about com- composition of Congress so that people might glaze over at this. So I won't go into too much detail. But the basic idea is that um, you have a much stronger polarization in Congress now, because previously you had a couple of... Um, Uh, ideological polls in represented by some key parties, PT on the one hand, and uh, the PSDB on the other kind of center right neoliberal party. Now, uh, but but the the majority of Congress was made up of like pork barrel politics and and, um, parties who exist merely as vehicles uh, for patronage. Now it's a bit more polarized, actually, and you have a very strong you know, far right poll around uh, Bolsonaro's PL party, but I should leave it a liberal party, uh, and uh, a, a smaller one around PT and uh, associated satellite left parties. Um, and that, that makes for a, a pretty different configuration and one which I think will resist a lot, um, you know, any kind of attempts for PT to do anything which might harm elite interests. Um, the, what's interesting, I guess, is that you know everything in Brazil can be resolved politically, at least, um, with a bit of cash. So you know the the there is the possibility that the far right block. which which has a lot of its history, at least over the past 20 years, as very much a pork barrel spending kind of party, um, that it actually, you know, does it act as a kind of authoritarian hard right or does it act as like, hey, we're just, uh, you know, you can buy us off basically. And the fact that Bolsonaro's uh, ally the uh, concurrent actually uh, speaker of the house was quick to congratulate Lula on victory, breaking ranks with Bolsonaro indicates perhaps it might be the latter that, you know, there'll be a deal to be found. And I think Lula's job will be to find those deals, to make sure that he doesn't get impeached and that he can get at least a minimum part of his program through. And I, and I suspect that will be nothing structural whatsoever. Um, no serious reform either. It will be a, uh, increased social spending um which you know to deal with hunger for example it will i suspect might be his first move um which has two effects one it fortifies uh or you know i guess grants those people who voted for him something in return right especially the the, the bottom 50 percent uh, who are still you know very much his base uh and so thus also fortify you know Fortify him against any impeachment, or you know, um, turn away from his presidency, uh, as well as guaranteeing his legacy. I think you know he very is very proud of the uh, to be the person who uh, solved hunger in Brazil, and I think with hunger having returned, thirty million going hungry, trying to resolve that initially will be will be kind of an, an early order of business. So um,
0: right. Given the unfavorable congressional arithmetic, and given the, the the probable priority of avoiding some sort of contestation or coup d'état the, down the line, um, the PT is not going to push for radical change and will probably ha- require some some sort of pay, you know, paying off uh, of, of of the, the more right wing elements in parliament to get. Um, some sort of social democratic um, policy, through, as you say, social spending, particularly focused on hunger, etc. So there's a focus on stability that is probably more pronounced than in his first two terms. The other um, thing that I want to insert here is um, what is what is what is Lula's policy on uh deforestation and and uh the 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 um the amazon because a lot of the western response was um i'll pass this to you david was a cry of relief that Bolsonaro is now out of office but also in regard to the really accelerating destruction of the southern part of the amazon uh, basin um to make way for cattle ranchers which then you know made sure that there's cheap meat uh domestically which is you know, part of the um, that that political uh, compromise in a way, and also to, to feed the exports to China and Hong Kong in particular. What is Lula's official official position on on this issue, David?
1: Yeah, I think that the, the to to make sense of the position on the Amazon, it's helpful to make sense of a different sphere of policymaking that I think is going to have a different texture, shape, and and speed to the one that Alex has described, namely foreign policy, international policy. Now, the two main planks. Of Lula's international policy, which he has reiterated over and over again, although he's done it, you know, with most of the the liberals who think he's whatever Luke Skywalker, closing their ears, is that he wants one to advance Latin American integration, that is to say, moving away from just Brazil, you know, importing fertilizer and exporting soy to China to rebuilding institutions like UNASUR, the Union of South American Nations, or CELAC, the Union of Caribbean and Latin American Nations, and advancing with integration of their health systems so that they can avoid having to beg the global north for vaccines in the case of a future pandemic, so they can trade more with each other and become a more resilient bloc, so they can have the kind of sovereignty as a bloc that's very important for Lula. And the rest of these progressive governments have basically been waiting around for Lula's arrival to power, for them to execute on their own ambitions vis-a-vis Latin American integration, because Brazil is a country with 220 million people, with huge economic powerhouse, is the one that can actually lead this process uh, and carve out its space on the global stage to, to make it happen in a credible way. The Mexicans could do that, but that's uh, for a different podcast. Uh, and as Porfirio Diaz said, "Poor Mexico, so close to the United States and so far from God," and that I think is truly a, a special. Um, observation about its enduring uh, foreign policies. So you've got, on the one hand, this push for Latin American integration, the reconstruction of institutions that Bolsonaro was very quick to leave, destroy, undermine, and ignore, right? And the other major plank of Lula's international policy is the bloc known as BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Now, this is not what many people even listen to this podcast, are going to want to hear. But it was one of the first things that Luda said to us when he won last night. We will not accept a new Cold War between the United States and China. We will have relations with everyone. So Brazil's foreign policy is going to be defined by the sense of sovereign interests, uh, of making decisions on behalf of glo- the global South. They're very comfortable speaking in this language of South-South cooperation, of making a pitch for Brazil, being an engine of investment on the African continent. These were things that were huge priorities for Lula in the early days, even when he was a moderate president, he was moving along these lines internationally. And they're gonna be priorities of his incoming government with many of the same people who were working around the foreign ministry, then are coming back to work as special advisors around this agenda now. So we come back to the question of the Amazon. Sure, Lula, you know, oversaw a huge uh, drop in deforestation of the Amazon. Uh, His, he's moved, he's moved a long way in his view of the importance of ecological transition, uh, of valuing, you know, a green industrial policy uh, compared to where he was 20 years ago. But the key thing the PT will tell you over and over again is we, this is our Amazon. Uh, The Amazon belongs to Brazil. None of this, the Amazon belongs to the planet. Sure. 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 Great. Yeah. The planet's lungs. We get it, it's important, but we're gonna decide as a sovereign nation, how we handle this question. And we're not gonna walk into COP 27 in Egypt and get lectured by any one of these governments, nor are we going to do as um, some other leaders in the region have suggested, invite you know NATO or invite the U.S. government, the U.S. military to come in and support deforestation, putting out fires in Amazon, none of that. This belongs to Brazil you know, it's a resource uh, for the world, just like any other resource that's deposited in some other corner of the planet. Um, But we're gonna make sure that we're bargaining on behalf of the interests of the Brazilian people uh, and of, you know, paises hermanos, fraternal nations here in in Latin America and through the the south of the world. So,
0: yeah, I think that's what I wanted to tease out as well. Um, The, whatever commitment there might be to preserving um, the Amazon basin as a habitat, um, or whatever Lula's newfound ecological um, interests, it's inconsistent with both his uh, ambition to have some sort of leadership position within the, you know, the BRICS country or the, the group of sort of southern middle-income countries um, with, you know, China and India being the notable partners. Um, and of course, also the main importers of soybean and, and, and cattle that is linked to a deforestation and to his... Um, to also his domestic politics as he, there was this line i think it was yesterday or the day before when he said everyone deserves um a picanya steak and a beer and uh, gravy and all that obviously so there's cheap meats also domestically is is very tightly enmeshed on on in his sort of um in the way he appeals to his base i suppose so there might be a rude awakening as you say um uh, on that i also wanted to just uh, Tease out this point about non-alignment and how that um, might be. I mean, first of all, we can have the question about how non-alignment can work in a sort of multipolar world, uh, and how exactly they um, they intend to uh, to build these coalitions with um, you know with China and other countries. And how, but the, the point I want to focus on now is how will that bring or how might that bring Brazil into direct conflict with the United States, or how antagonistic will they be? To the main player in the hemisphere, which is, called, which is of course the U.S., despite the fact that the U.S. is, uh, you know, nominally a central left government, uh, many people shared this this picture on on Twitter yesterday about you know the red hemisphere, with more or less every other country from Canada to to, to Argentina being um, you know led by a, a central left government, which is of course kind of ridiculous because it lumped in Cuba and the U.S. Uh, how how ridiculous is that, Alex? Do you think? And and how Oh, David, maybe you want to start on this, how, what, what will the, how, do, you, how do you read um, U.S.-Brazilian relations in the next uh, couple of years?
1: I think that they're going to evolve. I mean, I think that, so, you know, let's start from where they are now. Joe Biden tweeting, uh, you know, 20 minutes after, uh, or sending out a press release 20 minutes after the election was called, congratulating Lula. This is a big priority. Now, you can read that uh, with, uh, what's the word, sort of in good faith. You can read it as saying, this is, you know, Joe Biden delivering on an agenda of defense of democracy, or you can read it cynically and be like, well, you know, Bolsonaro didn't even have the domestic institutional support to deliver on some coup agenda, right? So, this was an opportunity for Joe Biden to brandish those credentials as a great promoter of democracy and celebrate, you know, how he, in, in his presidency, he oversaw the eviction of the big bad man, Bolsonaro. In any case, I don't think that that image, which is now being touted all over the internet of, you know, Joe Biden being um, sort of on, on Lula's side, uh, that's going to, that's going to fade immediately. You know, the United States does not take well to this confrontation. And we see it elsewhere in the region where you have governments coming back into power. You know, I was just in Honduras, which is, just, I think, an illustrative case for us, because there there was a coup in two thousand seven, uh, sorry, in two thousand nine, right? Which was led by the Honduran military, trained by U.S. Southcom. Once the military coup happens, Hillary Clinton, then Secretary of State, goes, I mean, what are we going to do? Okay, yeah, you're the government now accepts a military government. And it takes another 11 years until last year, we're approaching the one year anniversary for democracy to come back to Honduras for the same people who were evicted literally in their pajamas and flown out in helicopters during a military coup to come back to the presidential palace. And what did the US do? They sent Kamala Harris, they sent Samantha Power, they say, congratulations, welcome back to power. But the second Honduras dared to nationalize its electricity grid, the US trade representative had an absolute shit fit. And they sent all the power that they had down to, down to Tegucigalpa to basically threaten the Hondurans to say, this is not on, you will not do this. And so it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in terms of uh, Lula's attempts to transform these international relations. I mean, I think that you know we should take seriously th- this commitment to non-alignment. We should take seriously the idea that Lula and similarly minded uh international diplomats here in latin america want to make the region of latin america into a kind of fourth pole proper pole in that order if we're taking you know us russia china and there's of course we can there's others but my point is that that's the idea of this integration process lula speaks about um lula speaks about latin america like really looking to the european union They, they they're like we want to do what they did there we want the monetary union we want we want all these institutions I mean, it's it's to, sort of kind of uh, naive in this way, but it's 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 genuine this commitment. Um, and so, uh, I don't th- I think that w- when the moves are being made in that direction, um, and we can already see this from like the Time magazine interview that Lula did when he was asked about the war in Ukraine and gave a line that people just absolutely lost their minds. And so, once these lines start being decided from Itamaraty, from the Foreign Ministry, but also in the President's office. I think the relationship will sour very, very quickly. That dynamic, to close it out, has a very interesting relationship to what Alex was describing in terms of domestic policymaking space. If there's not huge political opportunities for Lula to like initiate structural reforms that actually threaten U.S. interests and foreign capital, then, you know, maybe we're going to be left only with these kind of rhetorical jousts at the UN General Assembly and the annals of the OAS, right? But I think that uh, insofar as the 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 gun is so loaded now for the U.S. looking to global south leaders to like align now with us as the great soldiers of democracy. Once that sovereignist energy begins to express itself on the world stage, I don't expect the relations between the U.S. and Brazil to remain uh, kind of hand-in-hand flag-wavy friendship.
0: I should also add that there's probably less of an incentive domestically for Biden to step away from this um, this policy stance because there's, I think, a development within sort of liberal progressive circles in the US that American engagement with the world, as it's euphemistically called, is somehow now perfectly acceptable. So there's really, there's very little criticism of Biden's foreign policy, it seems to me, on, in, in the sort of um, established liberal circles, even on the, on, the prog- on, the, on the progressive end of that circle. Alex, what do you, um, what do you think about um, the, the, the possible antagonism between Brazil and, and the US in that hemisphere?
2: Well, I mean, I think there'll certainly be a little bit of a turn to China, at least relative to the Bolsonaro administration. I think it's notable that lots of sections of Brazilian capital were pretty unhappy with Bolsonaro's jousting with China and it's sort of zombie anti-communism directed at China going, hang on, this is our biggest trade partner. Can you stop that now, please? Um, And Lula, of course, will be much more um, businessman-like, I guess, um, with regard to Chinese relations. Um, And, you know, I think there's also an impulse towards a turn, almost in in the way that people often speak about American presidents, especially in the second half of their second term, where there's a kind of turn towards external affairs, of course, they have an empire to manage, which Brazil doesn't. Um, But nevertheless, I think there's a, we can draw a certain analogy there. Um, The fact is, is that, you know, the PT's party president, uh, Glazia Hoffman, said this will not be a PT government, right? So that's pretty, pretty explicit. All Brazilian governments, by the way, since redemocratization, have not been a party government because uh, the way that it's structured means that you have to cobble together all sorts of different support, even within the government, let alone in Congress. Um, But this one will especially not be a PT government. Given that, and given what I already said about Lula basically having to prioritize even more around certain, maybe perhaps easier to pass measures, um, I think most of his energy will be directed abroad. Um, And partly, I think the international context provides more space than the last time he was president. Last time Brazil was trying to, for example, uh, negotiate an Iran nuclear deal, right, with Iran and and kind of placing itself that um, kind of between Iran and the U.S., it, uh, it very much fell foul of uh, the U- the U.S. Uh, foreign policy establishment. Um, now I'm not sure how much that'll be the case. Um, I'm actually interested what you guys think about this. Um, but I think there's a little bit more space between these blocks now, particularly because of the waning of American power relative to to where we were, you know, a decade or two ago. Um, but you know, I, I think one thing to highlight is that part of the Lulista way of operating, of assuaging the consequences of the crisis, but uh, accelerating the fundamentals of the crisis, which is uh, very much, a you know, a, I think is the right way to describe his domestic actuation, domestic action, um, kind of applies even internationally. So one of the the biggest missteps, I think, the like Lula's foreign policy committed, or Lula's foreign policy committed, uh, was the intervention in Haiti as part of MINUSTA, the um, UN inter- humanitarian intervention in Haiti, which hugely strengthened the military's prestige, sense of itself, etc. Um, in Brazil. And uh, as a consequence, that all came, there was like blowback, I guess is the right way to call it, uh, in Brazil as the military then assumed a greater role, took what it learned in Haiti. Um, and applied it domestically in the so-called pacification, uh, which is very much uh, not the case in Rio de for example. Um, and, you know, the U.S. is intervening again in Haiti, who knows, maybe there's an opportunity there for, I mean, and then here, I have to emphasize, that I'm very much speculating, but this might be an opportunity for um, Lula to brandish his international statesman humanitarian credentials once again. Um, and perhaps that there's a little bit of give and take there with the U.S. saying, hey, we'll help out here, provide you with some kind of ideological cover on Haiti, for example, um, if you give us something else, I don't know, but that, but that's that's kind of speculative, I guess, on on uh, international affairs.
0: Well, I think um, we should leave it there. But I think we can also conclude that you know, a lot of question marks and the joyous mood of um, yesterday and today might not last very long, depending on what happens domestically and 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 uh, abroad. Because one thing that we didn't quite um, emphasize which is that the the external environment won't get better in fact it might get much worse both in terms of um, inflationary pressures and um, the attendant global tightening cycle might limit Lula's space even more and if it doesn't and if he does have the space and somehow manage to wrangle the 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 um, parliamentary arithmetic and the coalition within his government and if he manages to be that kind of the kind of Lula that we know, he might then um run into problems with the with the u s and its own interests there, so there's almost yeah there's a lot of um uncharted ground, but I think there's also a lot of cause for worry. so um thank you so much for coming on both of you, and maybe we'll have you back both of you at some point um thanks so much guys, and um i'll I'll see you guys soon. thank you so much.
2: Cheers Peace thank on. you.
0: Thanks so much for listening in. This was our bonus episode on the Brazilian elections with Alex Hockley and David Artler. We'll be back sometime later this week with an episode Anton and I recorded with Helen Thompson back in May. And we hope um, you'll uh, listen in there too and that you will continue to contribute to our work. We will post this episode on our Patreon page and on our SoundCloud. So you can find them both there. Also, follow us on Twitter, if you like, at EurotrashPod, where we'll be posting uh, our episodes and interesting content, including transcripts um, of some of our past and forthcoming episodes. So thank you very much.